Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So let's begin by stating the obvious. Earthquakes occur. (laughs) Is that obvious if you've never experienced one? Well, that's the interesting thing, right? Because, um, you know, obviously I know that earthquakes occur. I I know people who live in parts of the world where um, where earthquakes are fairly common. There was some news story, I think it was just within the past couple weeks, that some regions of California oh, just yes. had like continuous shocks going on for yeah, some ridiculous Yeah, and I was, and I was watching people on social media, you know, react to it and even you know, mark themselves safe and, and so forth. Uh-huh. And, but um, I, it violates my expectations because I usually, when I imagine an earthquake, I imagine that something, something that happens for a few seconds and then is over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um it, I think the other interesting thing about it for me personally is that I don't think I've ever experienced an earthquake. Mm-hmm. Like I've always either resided in parts of the world where there's little seismic activity uh and and whatever seismic activity I was privy to, I just didn't notice, you yeah. know, it like wasn't a significant enough um quake. Uh, yeah, I've never noticed experiencing an earthquake. I'm right. sure there have been, you know, detectable shocks where I was at a time, but not detectable by my brain. Right. So it's one of those things where if if, if I did not you know, know uh, based on the science and based on uh, other people's reports that they occur, uh, you know, it would not even be real to me. But 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 they do occur, and this would have been something that would have been obvious to humans in, in ancient history, at least those that that resided in areas where the the rumblings of the earth could be felt, could be you know observed in some uh, fashion or another. And that's something that we certainly have learned over time is that. Earthquakes are not just random. They don't mm-hmm. occur just anywhere with the same frequency. They occur specifically along lines of heightened geologic activity on on the Earth's surface. Right. I think everyone probably remembers some of this from uh, from from their their science textbooks and their geology textbooks. The the basics of plate tectonic theory. The idea that the Earth's tectonic plates are constantly rubbing up against each other, and these edges uh, are are a place where a great deal of exciting geologic activity. Uh, often occurs. And sometimes these plates slip, releasing energy in the form of seismic waves. This happens every day, and most of these quakes aren't even observed. But then, of course, larger quakes can and do occur, and they can prove quite devastating, especially to human constructions, human habitats, human cities, cities especially. Cities can fall. Rivers can run backwards. uh, Catastrophic tsunamis can rise up from the ocean. Yeah. And this is why the idea of an earthquake detector is so interesting, or it's one of the reasons anyway. Because if you experience an earthquake, there's no doubting what happened, especially if it is of significant force, you know, significant magnitude. And if you're not close enough to feel one, then you'll only know about it if you hear about it. If someone travels a long distance and says, hey, the the earth shook, uh, you know, across the province or across the empire. And so when we consider the possible invention of an earthquake detector, I mean, really, this is the kind of thing that's only necessary if – First, uh, first of all, you need to know if quakes are occurring somewhere far away, mm-hmm. such as on the other side of an expansive country or empire. Uh, also, it would be good to know if you need to know about the occurrence of smaller quakes that might otherwise escape notice. Uh-huh. Uh, because again, uh, not all earthquakes are going to be of a magnitude that you're just going to notice what's happening as you're going about your daily business. 
Uh, They might also be useful, though, if you need to, in some systematic fashion, gather data about earthquakes. Right. And, yeah, that comes to my my next point. If you're you're determined that there's a a pattern to seismic activity and the detection – uh, of one helps reveal the pattern and, and possibly even predict future quakes. Yeah. Then this is certainly a case where it would pay off to be able to keep track of all sorts of uh, uh, seismic activity from the, the smaller occurrences to the larger occurrences and attempt to try and figure out the pattern of these occurrences. This is an important point because for some reason I often seem to, to notice people getting the idea of earthquake detection and earthquake prediction mixed up. Uh, as, right. as if one and the other are sort of the same thing. And they're obviously extremely different things. Right. I mean, they're they're connected, obviously, because uh. you need to know, you know, sort of a, you have an idea for the frequency. And then, of course, if you know a large earthquake has occurred, then you know well, that aftershocks will occur. Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. But – but yeah, there does seem to often be a confusion between detection and prediction. But it does seem that detection is going to be necessary if we need a good science of prediction. Right. But of course, for the most of humanity's time on Earth, it's safe to say that there was no need to bother with quake detection. If a quake worth knowing about occurred, you'd know it. Yeah. And localized existence didn't really require, you know, seismic knowledge of far-flung lands. But of course, sprawling empires did emerge, along with the very sorts of cities and works that were vulnerable to seismic destruction. And as brilliant minds began to unravel the world through pattern recognition, they of course turned their minds to the tremors in the Earth. Awareness of quakes certainly goes back to prehistoric times, but it's the sort of natural disaster that plays into various mythologies, Mm -hmm. you know, attributed to the power and anger of such gods and goddesses as Loki, uh, Poseidon, uh, the giant – also various monsters such as the the giant Japanese catfish uh, Namazu, Mm -hmm. and of course the movements of various world animals that carry our world on their back, you know, be it a a turtle or what have you, uh, you know, that is sometimes in in the mythology. Uh, a reason for the shaking of the earth. Yeah. I mean, very often, uh, not to overgeneralize, but very often earthquakes are interpreted as some form of divine judgment or punishment. Right. But it does raise the question, what is the oldest historical record of an earthquake? Uh, because, you know, like I say, clearly we've known about them for ages. They factor mm-hmm. into our, our, our mythologies. Uh, so as, you know, as we'll discuss, record keeping is vital to understanding seismic activity, especially as that record key- keeping stretches beyond the limits of an individual lifespan. But, but one of the answers takes us to eastern China's um, Taishan, uh, Mount Tai, which is uh, uh, about um, – and it takes us back about uh, either 3,750 or 3,850 years uh, ago. Uh, it was recorded in the bamboo annals. Uh, this was a text that was interred with, t- with King uh, Zhang of Wei, who died uh, 296 BCE, and then uh, this was rediscovered in 281 CE. Though I should point out that there, there has in the past been some discussion among Western scholars regarding authenticity because basically we have the lost remains of an ancient court document that was written on bamboo slips and then the copies seem to contain some uh, you know, uh, spurious information. But if we're still talking about, you know, we're still talking about very ancient writings here and some of the, the few surviving uh, writings from this time period. Uh-huh. I think one thing that's interesting about earthquakes as a a problem we face is that it's clearly something that became more dangerous and more destructive to humanity 
the more our civilization developed. Oh, yeah, like, absolutely. The, basically, the, the worst thing about earthquakes for humans is that humans tend to build buildings and buildings tend to be rigid and not very good at resisting earthquakes. And so we go in the buildings and then the earth shakes and the buildings fall on us and kill us. If you're out in the middle of a meadow somewhere and there's an earthquake, it's probably not going to hurt you. Now, if you're standing by the, you know, the side of a river <laughs> right. or in a swampland, I mean, there are various uh, cases where, where, yes, you could have uh, something more dire happen. Or a tsunami, yeah. Right. I mean, it's not that there are no natural dangers from earthquakes, but it seems that we very much multiply the, the fatality risk and injury risk of earthquakes by putting ourselves inside rigid human-made structures out of stone and wood and stuff. Absolutely. And then again, when, when you have, you know, true kingdoms rising up in sprawling empires, you have the situation where like one area becomes uh, comes to depend on another. Uh-huh. And, and so it's not just a situation of, well, sometimes the earth shakes and sometimes cities fall, uh, but what can you do? No, uh, you'll have an invested interest in, in what's going on in these other places. Yeah, and that is often how earthquakes show up in the most ancient historical records is like basically just the – they show up as the records of the destruction of cities and human structures. Yeah, it's yeah. like, well, those walls fell down. What can I tell you? Either our army was magnificent or maybe they were just extra sinful. Uh-huh. But for some reason, the earth shook, their walls fell down. It was probably God. Yeah, it, there are often religious interpretations to them. I, w- I want to cite one example of an ancient earthquake that uh, was recorded in history, specifically because of its damage to specific physical structures. Uh, so, and this would be an earthquake in 226 BCE that is cited by ancient historians as the cause of the destruction of the Colossus of Rhodes, also known as the Colossus of the Sun. Oh, yes. One of the most interesting monuments of the ancient world. So the Colossus was considered one of the seven wonders of the world by several ancient authors. It was a giant statue of the sun god Helios, the patron god of the island of Rhodes, and it was made of bronze and reinforced with iron scaffolding and stone blocks, and it stood guard over the Mandrakian harbor. It was built by a sculptor named Charis of Lindos, and it was uh, it was around the beginning of the 3rd uh, the century BCE, built to con- commemorate the victory of Rhodes uh, with, the, with the help of Ptolemy uh, against the invading Macedonian army. So uh, Rhodes withstood a siege. They were victorious. The Macedonians left, left their siege equipment behind, and the, uh, the, the people of Rhodes celebrated by building this statue. Now, we don't know exactly what it looked like or exactly where it was placed. There are some indications that it was posed with one hand shielding its eyes as if, you know, trying to block the sun, which is funny because it's Helios. Yeah, why does he need to do that? But then also in the other hand may have been holding some kind of garment or or piece of cloth. Uh, There are slightly different estimates about its dimensions, but the historian Robert B. Kebrick endorses the idea that the statue was probably about 110 feet or about 33.5 meters tall, combined with a pedestal of about 50 feet or about 15.2 meters for a total of 160 feet or about 49 meters in height, which is approximately the size of the Statue of Liberty in New York. Uh, So if you've seen depictions of the Colossus of Rhodes straddling the entrance of the harbor, I'm sure you've seen this in pictures, uh, so that ships would have to enter and leave passing underneath and between its legs. 
those are from later interpretations by like medieval and early modern writers. They're almost certainly incorrect uh, given the structural and engineering limitations at the time. You can only do so many things with bronze in 3rd century BCE and making a giant like bow-legged sun god spread his legs over the water. That was not <laughs> one of them. Uh, so the Colossus was probably standing posed somewhere that looked out over this popular trading port. And despite its reputation and the fawning descriptions of ancient travel writers, the Colossus only stood for about 50 to 60 years. Ancient sources indicate that it was destroyed by an earthquake that rocked the island of Rhodes in about 225 or 226 BCE. And according to the Greek geographer and historian Strabo, it was broken off at the knees at the time of the earthquake, and then it toppled over and the remains of the statue were left on the ground where they fell because an oracle gave a pronouncement forbidding it to be raised up again, and apparently it stayed that way for hundreds of years, just toppled over at the knees. Pliny the Elder, later in the first century CE, writes about the ruins of the Colossus left by the earthquake, and he says, quote, where the limbs are broken asunder, vast caverns are seen yawning in the interior. Oh, wow. So I wonder if people would go inside the fallen statue of the god. Kind of urban explorers of the ancient world, I guess. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, and so the ruins of, of the god Helios lay where they fell, apparently until around the 7th century CE when they were broken up and sold for scrap by an invading army. So ah. we have no physical remains of the Colossus of Rhodes. It's just gone. We, we just only... have these ancient accounts of what it, what it would have looked like. I mean, it, it, based on the, the idea that it would have been the, about the size of the Statue of Liberty, I mean – the Statue of Liberty is very impressive to see, you know, rising up out of the, the mists and uh -huh. all. Uh, so, so one can imagine it would have, you know, certainly you know, struck a chord with travelers back in the day. Oh, and just a reminder too, I mean, the Statue of Liberty is also, uh, it is a goddess. Yeah. We often kind of forget what it actually depicts, but it's the, the, the goddess uh, uh, Libertas, uh, the goddess of liberty. Huh. You know, I don't think I knew that, actually. I don't yeah. think I could have told you that. Yeah, I, I, I usually don't <laughs> go check it out, but uh, I was recently in New York uh, and had some, some family with me, and we went and checked it out. And, and it, it, is, it is neat to be reminded of just how, you know, how impressive the statue is, again, especially if you see it kind of emerging from uh, the fog, kind of struggling to make itself, uh, you know, seen. Uh, in this country. You know, I totally know it isn't true, but I realized I just think of it as a statue of Emma Goldman. <laughs> I guess because of the poem. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, any, well, yeah, I mean, this is fascinating that this famous wonder of the world, it was actually only standing for like 50 or 60 years and then for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. you know, 10 times as long as it was standing, it was just sitting there on roads toppled over at the knees waiting for somebody to come bust it up and sell it for scrap. Yeah. And and we're still talking about it. We're still talking about it. Like you, you hear someone talk about the Colossus of Rhodes, you think of this uh, – this fantastic uh, creation, uh, this fa this fabulous construction. And, uh, yeah, it was only up for a very, very brief period of time. Yeah. Uh, another huge er earthquake in the ancient world was in 17 CE. It damaged or destroyed at least a dozen cities in Lydia, which was a huge province in the western part of Asia Mar Minor, which is now Turkey. Um, but I, I think we should turn back to China after a break because then we will get into discussing our, our sort of featured inventor for the episode today. All right, we're back. 
So, yes, our featured inventor for today uh, was a man by the name of uh, Zong Yong, who was uh, a Chinese polymath and court astronomer in the Eastern Han Dynasty. Uh, he would have lived uh, 78 through 139 CE. And he served uh, the emperors uh, uh, Andi and Shundi. Now, this would have been combined uh, reign 94 CE to 144 CE. And his role was important. He tended to the calendars and celestial events, aiding the emperor, who of course ruled at the mandate of heaven, in maintain, maintaining the balance between cosmos and civil life, uh-huh. which is a very important connection uh, in, in, uh, in, in Chinese culture and especially in the, the rule of this time. And Zong Hong performed these duties during what some call the golden age of Chinese history. Four centuries of economic prosperity that saw the traffic of goods and ideas across the Silk Road. Uh, he was an inventor and, and really an early scientist. Yeah, and a poet. Uh, so th- this was interesting. I, he, he had like a whole literary career. Like before he became interested in the sciences, uh, it seems about around the age of 30, he had an cr- early career as a poet and a literary scholar and a civil servant in his, in his home uh, area of Nanyang. And I was like, OK, so I got to find some of his poems. I, I looked up some of his poetry and one poem I found by Zhang Hung was called The Bones of Zhuangzi, translated by Arthur Whaley. And it's pretty great. Uh, this is from a section of the poem where the bones of a dead man are speaking to a traveler who comes upon them. Ooh. And the bones say, of the primal spirit in my substance, I am a wave in the river of darkness and light. The maker of all things is my father and mother. Heaven is my bed and earth my cushion. The thunder and lightning are my drum and fan. The sun and moon my candle and my torch. The milky way my moat. The stars my jewels. With nature I am conjoined. I have no passion, no desire. Wash me and I shall be no whiter. Foul me and I shall yet be clean. I come not, yet am here. Hasten not, yet am swift. Hmm. That sounds like a description of like a mystical or psychedelic experience. A lot of oneness with the universe. Uh, yeah. The stars are my things. Yeah, conjoined. Interesting. Uh, but eventually after his literary career, his interest turned to the sciences, uh, which was chiefly astronomy and mathematics. And he gained renown for his expertise in these fields. And this led him to a position in the imperial court, which he entered around 112 CE, uh, where he was eventually promoted to the position of head astronomer a few years after that. And he went on to do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, um, just some of the advancements uh, that he made um, included he estimated the value of pi as the square root of 10 or 3.1622. That's pretty close. Yeah. Uh, He allegedly invented an odometer in the form of a wheeled cart that would mark uh, Chinese miles. Oh, okay. So an odometer is a length measurement. Right, yes. Or distance measurement. I guess it's the same thing. mm Mm-hmm. He also wrote a treatise called uh, uh, Ling Shan, uh, Mystical Laws, that explained the structure of the cosmos is that of a hen's egg. So the earth is uh, the yolk and the heavens are the egg white containing the movements of the, the, the moon and other celestial bodies. Yeah, I, uh, I found a quote directly from Mystical Laws where he explains this. He says, the sky is like a hen's egg and is as round as a crossbow pellet. Hmm. The earth is like the yolk of the egg lying alone at the center. The sky is large and the earth is small. And I wouldn't have thought you would need to make that distinction that the sky is large and the earth is small. Mm-hmm. But – Maybe that is a meaningful distinction in ancient cosmology. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, it's one of those things we we tend to take for granted, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I think in addition to that, he believed that the sky was suspended on a vapor on the waters. So it was like resting on waters. Uh, there's a lot of great sky water in lots of ancient uh, cosmological systems. Uh, but so while he was wrong about conceiving of the Earth, the universe geocentrically with the Earth at the center, he was correct in understanding the Earth as a sphere surrounded by sky in an, uh, and in an understanding that the moon and other planets were also spherical. And he had several insights about the moon – Yeah, he theorized that the moon did not emit light itself, but merely reflected the light of the sun. So to quote from the mystical laws, the sun is like fire and the moon like water. The fire gives out light and the water reflects it. And uh, Zhang Hong used uh, observations of a lunar eclipse to conclude that both the moon and the earth are spheres and that the moon merely reflects the light from the sun, which, of course, you can conclude if you, you know, critically observe an eclipse because the earth is blocking the light from reaching the moon and thus reflecting back on us. To see the earth's shadow pass in front of the moon like that, you can draw the conclusion that the moon doesn't actually emit light. And he built an armillary sphere or celestial sphere to illustrate these ideas. Mm -hmm. It was uh, made of bronze and it mapped thousands of stars and it was powered by a water clock. So it was mechanical. It moved. Um, And, uh, you know, he was was not the the first uh, to build one of these, but the invention does seem to have have its earliest roots in Chinese astronomy. Mm -hmm. So while he was not the inventor, we can, uh, you know, most commentators do point to Chinese history as as being the, the place where this sort of technology was born. I'm interested in the idea of so the it was moving the objects in the heavens by having water emptying out of a vessel. Yeah, I, I would actually love to come back and discuss water clocks in greater detail, or just clocks. And I mean, goodness, we could do a whole series on timekeeping technology in the future. But uh, but water clocks, particularly some of the the, the various Asian varieties, are, are very fascinating. I just found out today for the first time. You know, the ancient word for water clock, the clepsydra. Ooh. It, you know where that comes from? Kleps meaning theft and hydra meaning water. So, so you're stealing water. You're stealing the power of the water. Yeah. It's huh. a, the, the water clock is the water thief. It takes away the water and this measures the time. Huh. But despite all of his achievements, not everybody liked Zhang Hung. Uh, he apparently faced opposition from other scholars and courtiers. Apparently, one major reason for this controversy had to do with reforms to the imperial calendar that Zhang Hung introduced or oversaw the introduction of around the year 123. And I, I was trying to understand this better. Some sources claim that he got into trouble uh, basically by making reforms to the calendar to bring it in line with astronomical observations, right? So he's doing astronomy, observing the heavens. He notices that the calendar does not match up correctly with his astronomical mm-hmm. observations and he brings the calendar in line to match them correctly. And and so I've read some in some places that that was the problem. I've also seen references to more arcane religious disputes as the source of the struggles at court. So I'm not positive how all that resolves. But one thing is clear uh, – astronomy was of extreme importance to the ancient Chinese rulers. It wasn't just for curiosity. It wasn't just for play. It was serious business of life and death. 
Yeah, I mean, of course, we we do see this in in, in several other major civilizations as well. I mean, the uh, you see this in Mesoamerican cultures. Yeah, uh, uh, the the Babylonians. Uh, yes, I mean, it, um, the, also uh, you know, ancient India. There was this um, this this understanding that you know the there are these things happening in in the cosmos, and there's a connection between what's happening there and what is happening here. This basic connection that uh, the Zhonghong's uh, uh, profession revolved around like helping the emperor uh, maintain this connection between cosmos and civil life. Exactly right. Yeah, the ancient Chinese rulers were often interested in astronomy because they believed that movements in the heavens gave predictions and ruled over the fates of people on earth, even kings or especially kings. Uh, and we, we've talked about versions of this on our other podcast on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that sticks out in my mind is the idea of some Babylonian or Assyrian rulers replacing themselves with a double if a lunar eclipse was predicted. You oh, remember yes. this, the eclipse kings? Mm-hmm. So the basic rationale here in ancient Mesopotamia was that a lunar eclipse was a death omen for the king. And if astrologers said a lunar eclipse is coming up, the king would temporarily abdicate and go into hiding by becoming a peasant. And then they would make an actual peasant, either like a a prisoner of war or just some random person, a gardener or somebody. They'd make them the king for a number of days to sort of absorb the curse of the lunar eclipse, after which the false king would be ritually put to death and the real king would return. And to some extent, this hinged on the ancient Mesopotamian astrologers' ability to actually predict eclipses. Like, you don't want a curse taking you by surprise. Mm -hmm. So there were magical or religious reasons for wanting accurate astronomical information. It was a magical motivation for real science. That's interesting how the essentially the the, the magical thinking that uh, it ends up entangling the whole um, just purely observational effort mm-hmm. then becomes the mandate for improving your ability to observe, calculate, and predict the movements of the heavens. Yeah, and so uh, it seems that ancient Chinese astronomers or astrologers played a somewhat similar role in the imperial court. Not exactly the same, but at least in part. Uh, Again, I I was trying to understand more about exactly what this conflict over the calendar and astronomical observations might have been. And I ended up reading a really interesting old paper on Chinese astrology by the historian Shigeru Nakayama. And this was published in 1966, but – It's got a lot of interesting characterizations of of like the history of astrology in China. Yeah, I I read uh, uh, this as well. And in part, it just also has a nice breakdown of what astrology is and was. Yeah. Uh, So just one uh, interesting little tidbit. This might be sort of a tangent, but uh, he, he writes, quote, Chinese court astrology consists purely in the accumulation of portents in the form of celestial meteorological and seismological phenomena, seismological Mm. also, supernovae, planetary conjunctions, comets, hailstorms, earthquakes, and their empirical correlation with events in human society which are relevant to the success of imperial rule. Here is a typical interpretation from the Shi Qi, which is records of the grand astrologer historian from about 90 BC. Quote, when Mercury appears in company with Venus to the east, and when they are both red and shoot forth rays, then foreign kingdoms will be vanquished and the soldiers of China will be victorious. 
And I think that suggests that that you know the, these are calculations that could could be used in uh, determining your the course of action with with military engagements. Oh yeah, the military campaigns help you know what's going to happen and plan for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they probably would not be very accurate, but uh, they would at least be perceived to have some kind of revelatory or accurate power. And I also think it's interesting in the way that it differs from what uh, Nakayama says are later versions of both Western and Eastern astrology, which are more focused on individualized patterns of fate dictated by like people's birthdays. This is sometimes known as uh, genethliacal or or natal astrology. And if Nakayama's description is correct, the oldest, more traditional versions of Chinese imperial astrology – would consist of making calendars of celestial events and then correlating them to events in the world, specifically events of interest to the emperor, so that future astronomical positions could be used to predict the fates of the empire and its leaders. And it was later that the fate calculations based on like birth calendars and stuff came in. But also something Nakayama says uh, that he writes is that eventually – For periodically recurring portentous events, okay, so things that you can predict are happening on a a pretty regular cycle like lunar eclipses and planetary alignments, Uh, he writes that for those things, the calendar itself became more important than the actual stargazing and observing of the heavens. Quote, The goal of astronomy was the production of the official calendar. Chinese astrologers relied heavily on calendrical indications rather than directly upon astronomical computations or observations. Counting cycles based on planetary periodicities could be replaced with much simpler abstract cycles. So in a sense, there's this idea that they they had they were kind of getting to the point where they were they were stealing the calendar from the heavens, yeah, just, and, yeah, and, and relying on the heavens less for their calendar uh, because ultimately what they they wanted what they needed was the calendar to govern uh, their decision making. Right. So you can see a, a weird kind of conflict there. So like if you are a reformer, as uh, at least several sources you know report that Zhang Hung was involved in reforming the calendar to make it more accurately fit astronomical observations. On one hand, like if you're the emperor, you would want that, you mm-hmm. know, because you would want that you would want to be able to predict things accurately. But also if maybe you're another astrologer in the court who's used to using the calendar how it is, <laughs> yeah. like you, you might be opposed to that because it would, it would you know, screw up what you're doing or it might just be a general challenge to tradition and kind of rocking the boat. Yeah, I could also see it be a situation where potentially, you know, the, 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 the perhaps unstated counter argument would be, uh, you know, look, let's not go, uh, you know, we don't have to worry about putting the calendar back in line with the cosmos if the calendar is working. Mm-hmm. Like we're trying to build a, you know, maintain a functional empire uh, based around this calendar. Uh, and then here's this guy coming along and saying, no, no, the astronomical data uh, uh, says that we should tweak uh, how we're planning out our year. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, but then again, I mean, I wanted to mention again, I ha- have also read elsewhere that there were like, Other concerns that may have Mm -hmm. motivated his problems in the court, maybe more like disputes about like esoteric religious interpretations of the calendar. So it's it's hard it's hard to sort out exactly what's what there. But but basically, Zhang Hong was an astronomer. He was pretty apparently pretty good at what he did within this astrological context, and he made some enemies in the court, and this, this interfered with his ability to advance throughout the court and have a successful career. 
But again, it's it's interesting to, to drive home, you know, his role as a scientist, his role as an astronomer, uh, you know, and to think, too, about astrology's, you know, empirical aspects uh, that, you know, we see in astrology the roots of pure scientific inquiry, the roots of medicine, et cetera. Yeah, th- that's exactly right. I mean, while astrology, I think, is rightly considered a pseudoscience, the history of astrology gives birth to a lot of practices that become and incorporate elements of real astronomy and are really science, uh, much in the same way that like the traditions of alchemy, you know, basically doing magic with materials did in some ways give rise to actual chemistry and understanding the properties of materials and chemicals. Okay, I think after we come back from a break, we should address Zhang Hong's primary invention for today's episode, which was an invention that he crafted later in the last decade of his life, the seismometer or seismoscope. Uh, and so we'll do a break and then we'll be right back with the seismoscope. All right, we're back. So what is a seismoscope, Robert? Well, the idea here is that it is an earthquake detector. It's a way of detecting um, seismic activity. Mm-hmm. Vibrations yeah. in the ground. Exactly, yeah. And so, yeah, this is the primary invention, uh, alleged invention uh, that we want to discuss here today. But we do want to drive home that, yeah, there there are a lot of mysteries about it. Yeah. Uh, we're not really sure how this thing was supposed to work, if truly it did work. But basically the idea here is that part of his job was, of course, observing natural phenomena mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, using it to calculate calendars, et cetera, uh, carrying out these, these astrological duties. And one of the things that he was considering uh, were the, the movements in the earth, the seismic a- activity, which they did not uh, understand as we understand it today. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, but still, it was, it was a, a noted natural phenomena that that they figured should be understood and studied. And then, of course, there was the connection, too, with the destructive nature of seismic activity. Again, if something terrible happened, if there was a terrible earthquake, uh, you know, on the far, uh, you know, extremes of the empire, it made sense for the emperor to know about it uh, yeah. so that you could, you could send aid, uh, you know, or, or, uh, to, to that location. Well, yeah, in this context, in the astrological context, uh, as we talked about already, they didn't just think the portents were in the heavens. They also thought the portents were you know, storms and, and earthquakes and things here on Earth. So the earthquake is not just, a, as you're saying, it's not just a consequence. It's not just that there is destruction and people get injured. It also is crucially relevant information to the emperor that might, you know, tell the emperor some, something important about what's about to happen. And so Xiong Hong created uh, what was called the Hofing Didong Yi, or the instrument for measuring the seasonal winds and the movements of the earth. Hmm. And based on descriptions of this device, it was apparently an elaborate bronze sphere with some sort of a sensitive pendulum inside of it. Mm-hmm. We're not sure about that. Most of the descriptions uh, apparently just describe the exterior with little yeah. or no detail about how it's working uh, on the inside. There was something inside it. Right. Uh, but hopefully we'll have a picture of this uh, or a, a recreation or an illustration of what this was supposed to look like on the landing page for this episode at inventionpod.com. But basically a big bronze sphere and it has all of these dragons yeah. uh, around uh, the edges of the sphere. Um, eight of them. Eight of them with their, their heads facing down, their mouths open, and then underneath Underneath each dragon uh, at the ba- on the base of this thing is a frog. And in the, in the event of seismic activity that this uh, device would detect, 
a bronze ball would drop out of the dragon's mouth into the frog's mouth. Uh-huh. And you would be able to look at the machine, see which dragon and which, fro- you know, which dragon and frog duo um, were, were engaged. And this would tell you which direction the seismic activity was in. Right, because the eight dragon and frog pairs were correlated with the cardinal directions of the right. compass. So you could say, oh, the, the northern ball just fell into a frog's mouth. That means there was seismic activity to the north. So we could send aid to the north, or certainly we could we can put this information into our, our record keeping. Uh-huh. And another aspect of it is that it was supposed to make a sound when the ball fell into the frog's mouth. So it was like a metal frog down there also. So you'd hear a clang, and that's like the alarm that an earthquake has happened. You go and check it, and then you can see which direction the earthquake came from. Uh, and there have been attempts to recreate this this thing. You'll see modern sort of reproductions of it, but they are by necessity uh, sort of approximate because we don't know a lot of specifics about what was going on, certainly about what was going on inside. Even the exterior of it, which we have a better description of, is it varies a good bit between the different uh, depictions. But generally, yeah, it's some kind of vase or jar, large vessel of some kind with the eight dragon heads going in each direction, the frogs underneath them, and then inside is the great mystery. That's right. And uh, as far as these recreations go, there was one, I believe, in the 19th century and one in the 20th century, Mm -hmm. and then a more recent one that we'll discuss as well. Yeah. And it is a a wonderfully... uh, you know, intriguing-looking device when you see these these re- recreations. Like, you just wonder, like, what magic does this thing hold, uh-huh. you know? Well, well I want to know, is there – I couldn't find anything about this, but is there spiritual significance within, like, the Chinese religion of the time of a dragon spitting into a frog's mouth? Does that mean something, or is it just these forms are there by accident? Yeah, I, I'm not sure on that. I mean, obviously, you can think to, you know, the importance of dragons in Chinese mythology and, you know, as well as, you know, certainly frogs show up as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, that would, be, that would be interesting to hear an answer on. But again, as for, you know, how this thing worked, if it worked, uh, we just don't know for sure. Yeah. And, and apparently, Zhang Hong faced skepticism at the time, which makes sense given, as we, we mentioned, that he had enemies at the court. Yeah. Um, the, the story goes that the device just sat there for years and, you know, people were like, oh, yeah, this thing works, sure. And I'm then, sure it would have been like a hilarious thing to talk about at parties. Yeah. yeah. Here's all the dragon heads ready to spit in the toad mouths. And as then nothing's happening. Yeah. yeah. It's just sitting there. But then the story goes that eventually a ball did drop into a frog. And this was years later. Yeah, this was years later. Uh, but and everyone was like, ah, oh, well, something happened. Um, but then but, word arrived to confirm that an earthquake had occurred in the designated direction. But nobody had felt it. That was the thing. Right. Like where the, where the detector was, it was reported that no one had any indication there had been an earthquake. But then later they got the, the messenger from the ravaged region. Yeah, because uh, the detector was in uh, Luoyang that was China's capital at the time. And the reported earthquake, according to the history of the later Han, uh, occurred something like 600 kilometers away. And this would have been in the year 138 CE. Yeah. Uh, and it, it would have been to the east, I think, is where they reported yes. it. Yes. Now, all we have to go on is literary descriptions from histories of, of this thing. We do not have any physical remains whatsoever. No, none at all. I mean, it's said that later versions of the invention existed, but 
but there are no relics there either. And uh, descriptions, again, focused on the ornate outside rather than the inner workings of this device. And then we had 19th and 20th century, uh, you know, various attempts to recreate the detector, but uh, those efforts did not create anything that seemed to function in a reasonable way. Okay, so you could conclude from that that, well, then maybe this is just a legend, you know, or maybe he built something but it didn't actually work or people got confused. Maybe a ball fell once and it just happened to, by coincidence, indicate where there'd been a... Well, yeah, one of the questions that often comes up is like, well, how would it work? How would you create something so sensitive? Uh Uh-huh. And and then like and then when there is seismic activity, why is it just going to set off? It's going to be so sensitive to seismic activity and yet so focused. So only one dragon is going to drop its ball. Right, the direction that yeah. that's really weird. Yeah. So how you know how would that happen? How how would you just have one ball triggered by a seismic event and yet have the device capable of detecting that seismic event? Um, Again, there were at least a couple of different efforts to recreate it, one in 1875 by a Japanese scholar and then uh, by a a Chinese museum researcher in 1951. Uh, But I was also reading about a 2005 effort uh, by a group of uh, seismologists and archaeologists from the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And uh, and they they claim to have uh, to have pulled it off. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Rigg wrote about this uh, in an article for uh, Engadget Mm -hmm. uh, and said, quote, in their version, the pendulum itself doesn't interact with any levers. Instead, it's suspended above another ball perched atop a thin pedestal. When the pendulum swings, it nudges the central ball down one of eight channels where it hits a trigger system that animates the external dragon mouth. We don't know this is exactly how Zhang's model worked, of course, but it shows that only a minor reinterpretation of how the uh, seismoscope is described in historical text can lead to the creation of a sensitive direction-aware device. Okay, so we've got some changes there because that that's – originally it's saying there's a ball in all of their mouths. Mm-hmm. And this is saying there's just one ball, but some pendulum inside that's extremely sensitive – will uh, will swing when there is vibration in the ground and will knock the ball into the mouth, like down one slide in a mm-hmm. particular direction where the waves are coming from, and then it'll come out of that dragon's mouth, which is different than what's described, but... It seems know, more believable yeah. in a sense, yeah. It could be kind of close enough that you'd be like, okay, maybe, maybe. Yeah, because uh, I was reading in uh, People's Daily Online from uh, 2005, there's an article about the device that, uh, that pointed out... Uh, that foreign seismologists would often argue that if uh, the seismograph worked on the principles of inertia, then again you'd have to, you have two, not one, uh, ball that would drop from a dragon's mouth. Yeah, um, you know, so if it was you know traveling north to south, it would trigger both north and south ball. But again, if there's just one ball in there, then it seems it's conceivable that you could have some sort of uh, elaborate pendulum system that would uh, that would just uh, shoot that ball into the desired direction. Hmm. This is an interesting mystery uh, because, like, it's in that realm of where – so we don't know exactly how it worked, if it worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we don't know to what extent this historical story is true, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. So it, it's one of those things where, you know, we, I feel like we, we can't skeptically rule it out, but also we don't really know yet. So it, it's one of those intriguing open mysteries. It seems feasible that – he set out to create a device to detect earthquakes, uh-huh. and maybe there was kind of an you know an internal rationale for how it worked and how it would work, and then it just simply you know did not fulfill the the purpose. You uh-huh. know? I mean, it's that's possible. Yeah, it, that 
I tend to think that's – and that, not to discount his scientific um, you know, integrity at all and his, his genius because clearly he was a very accomplished uh, individual who uh, – who, who you know thought a great deal about the you know the movements of the natural world, but you know ultimately this m- might have just been beyond his abilities to create. Right. But then ultimately, then how do you test it out? Right. You can't just compare the results of this earthquake detection device with like some other earthquake detection device. Right. You had only the accounts of seismic activity coming in from across the uh, you know the, the the empire to go on, uh-huh. and it sounds like there was like one hit, or at least that's the only hit that we have to to really uh, compare it to in in the histories. Right. Uh, you know, anything else was you know was seemingly lost. So I started looking into this uh, a little bit more and looking for you know other articles about um, uh, about his invention, and uh, it got into this area where we really began to touch on China's complex relationship with the past. Mm-hmm. So Chinese culture is deep and has been called uh, you know the oldest living civilization on Earth. I believe uh, uh, sinologist uh, Simon Lays uh, uh, put it like that. But the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and, and 1970s set people against what were what they referred to as the four olds, Hmm. old customs, old culture, old habits, and old ideas. And this, too, is a complicated area of Chinese history because the exact nature of the four olds was ultimately left to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Some old things, material or otherwise, material or otherwise were protected, uh, but other things were destroyed. And it did result in death and destruction. By the 1990s, however, the rebuilding and restoration efforts were taking hold. And uh, President uh, Xi Jinping has also encouraged a return to traditional Chinese ideas and, uh, and what has been described as a cultural Chinese cultural revival. Uh-huh. But it's interesting uh, to put all this in context with uh, this this alleged earthquake detector. Uh, I was reading a 2018 China Daily story titled, Reference to Zhang Hong's uh, Earthquake Device Removed from Textbooks. And basically, it mentions that the device was, mention of the device was moved from secondary school history textbooks in China to primary school textbooks. Uh-huh. But, it le- but the initial change led some media outlets to report that it had been simply removed from the textbooks. Oh. Which, you know, we can understand that. I mean, the, the, these kind of controversies pop up uh, uh, anytime there's a change to a textbook, right? Right. Um, but uh, the, the author of this piece then was speaking to a couple of individuals about it. And I found it, it was kind of revealing about how um, particularly Chinese engineers, Chinese scientists, how they – and ultimately, the you know the uh, ed- scientific education officials view this invention or alleged invention in Chinese history. So the author uh, Zheng Zhoxing, they spoke to a senior engineer uh, at the Sichuan Bureau of Geology and Mineral Resources. And this individual's take was that while some of the inventions of the of ancient China were wonders in their own age, the, they're, quote, useless now. Uh, <laughs> and therefore, while they are to be remembered, they're not to be worshipped. Which I mean, I, uh, I I can see the the logic in that. You know, uh-huh. you know, you're 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 trying to focus on on modern innovations and and modern inventions. Like if you you just can't dwell on ancient uh, inventions that ultimately we know nothing uh, about the the inner workings of. Well, I guess I'm against all cases of worshiping technology, right? <laughs> Uh, especially, though, recent technology. I'd be more inclined to worship the ancient technology that's useless now. Right. Uh, it also points out, of course, that the design itself was sketchy, and then recre- recreations are also sketchy. You know? Yeah, like, that's, we, of course. We yeah. just continue to not know how this thing worked or if it worked. 
And this was another uh, thing that this individual threw out is that some people have, he says, misunderstood what it was supposed to have done, thinking that it was a predictive device rather than a detector. Oh, yeah. Which comes back to what you said earlier about just sort of modern misunderstanding about what detecting an earthquake means. Yeah. And as such, uh, he said, you know, some people hype it up as being superior to modern technology. Uh, which um, you know, I, I think that's understandable too. Like you're, if you're working in you know, your given culture, trying to you know ad- advance the sciences, you don't want people pointing back to this thing from you know thousands of years ago and uh-huh. saying, "Oh, I heard they they had it figured out then." How how come we've forgotten uh, oh. how to detect earthquakes? I mean, that's like uh, it's like ancient aliens kind of stuff, where you know they say like, uh, "How could the ancient Egyptians have built the pyramids? We couldn't even build something like that today." Yeah, I mean, this is basically you know conspiracy. Th- Theory thinking, uh-huh. and and certainly, they, oh, sorry. Therefore, it must have been aliens, yes, which it yes. wasn't. It was just really smart, hardworking people. Yeah, it's, I mean, conspiracy theory ideas like this can be disruptive to like general scientific understanding of the world, uh-huh. and that stands certainly stands true in the United States and in the Western world. It's also true in uh, in China as well. So, uh, you know, that seems to be a valid argument. Um, the the author of this uh, China Daily piece also uh, spoke to an associate professor of chemical physics at the University of Science and Technology in China, who's, and this individual is also a pop science writer. And they point this individual pointed out: first of all, we can't be sure if it worked, so it shouldn't be in the history books. What? So uh, I mean, I could see where you might some might be getting lost. Might, in translation yeah, something might there. be lost in translation there, but. But I, I, I do see an argument for like, okay, maybe maybe it just needs to be a sidebar. Uh-huh. You don't you don't say who invented the seismograph. Oh, it was uh, uh, Zhang Chong, uh, and, uh, and and he's the inventor. Oh, I see. Like yeah. it shouldn't necessarily be be given uh, confident credit. Yeah, uh, and yet uh, the, this individual had uh, the following to say: "Quote." Yet that should not darken uh, Zhang's achievements. There is solid evidence of the existence of one of them, uh, the armillary sphere, uh, which helped ancient Chinese astronomers gain knowledge about observing the sky at night. Besides, Zhang's case also shows a sad fact about China's history, in which scientists were hardly given any attention. Zhang is now well known for his scientific achievements, but in his era, they only cared about his achievements as a writer as well as a politician. It is a pity for ancient China's technological progress. And that's a, that's a quote from Yan Lan Feng, Associate Professor of Chemical uh, Physics at the University of Science and Technology of China. I guess there is a good question there about uh, the question of we can't be sure if it worked, so it shouldn't be in the history books. Uh, again, something might be getting lost in translation mm-hmm. there. But like maybe maybe there is a good question that's relevant to us that's like how – how important is it to discuss these kind of like unsolved mysteries of technological history where, you know, someone is alleged to have created something we don't know for sure or can't say with real confidence whether it actually worked or how it would have worked if it did, but it's at least like tantalizing, you know, and you, right. you want to think it worked and you want to try to figure out if it did work how. Uh, I don't know. That kind of thing seems important and worth talking about to me. What also seems important for countering any kind of like, conspiracy theories that uh, that people you know roll out regarding a given piece of ancient technology, right? Had to be aliens, yeah, or something. yeah. Be it the the pyramids or the you know an earthquake detector or some of the things that we've discussed. Uh, we did those episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on uh, ancient alien hypotheses and uh, and some of the uh, the supposed evidence 
arguments that that um, the, 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 those writers like to to drag out, and the sort of the, the counter argument that was made by people like Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's ultimately important to engage those conspiracy theories or the, you know those uh, those hypotheses and say, actually, this is not what the evidence shows. This is what this thing was. This is our best understanding of 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 what it could have done and and how it might have worked. Yeah, I I mean, I think that there is a real just missed opportunity of fascination that goes on when people get into the ancient aliens thing mm-hmm. because I, I feel like people get into it because it seems cool and they want it to be true, right? You know, it's so interesting, the idea that maybe aliens came to Earth in the ancient past. Obviously, I think if there were evidence of that, it would be interesting. But isn't it also interesting that like maybe ancient people figured out how to do something really difficult with really limited tools and knowledge and they figured it out anyway? That's really interesting to me. Right. Well, I mean, the other side, too, is even if they failed, it's interesting. So, like, you read about Zhang Hong's device here, and, I mean, I find myself rooting for him. I Like, I really want this device to have worked. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, because it makes a better story, right? Right. Uh, certainly the whole thing where people thought he was wrong and then and then years later it successfully predicts an earthquake. Mm-hmm. But even if it didn't work, if it was just this, you know, inspired, intelligent attempt to create an earthquake detection device, like I still think that's impressive. Yeah. I mean, that's – I mean, that's still science. Uh, just, you know, unfortunately, there may not have been like, you know, the, the you know perfect situation to really test it out, to rigorously test it out and then to improve upon the design. The essence of science is the fact that failures are important. Yeah. Fa- failures matter. It, it, it Write up your failures and report them. That's That's useful to other people. Exactly. And so ultimately, yeah, I feel good about doing an episode of Invention that deals with an invention that – that may very well not have worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly we have no answer for how it worked if it did work. But may also have worked. And if so, that's really cool. Now, of course, we've got seismoscopes of all different kinds today, seismometers that some work on the basis of like a suspended spring or pendulum, kind of mm-hmm. like it's hypothesized that this thing probably did if it worked. Uh, others, uh, the, the, I think the ones today tend more often to use suspended magnets so that like tiny movements of the pendulum yes. can induce current and the, that can be recorded by electronic uh, detectors. Uh, some models use other methods like lasers or fiber optic cables or you know all, all kinds of other things. And I think this is a subject that maybe we could return to in the future. Maybe we could do something on modern seismometers. Yeah. Uh, some of the plans involve smartphones. How yeah. we can sort of use the power of smartphone technology uh, to, uh, to more accurately uh, d- uh, detect and study seismic activity. It remains a fascinating mystery in the annals of invention. What happened? Zhang Hung, did he detect an earthquake in the second century CE? What do you think? Right in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, certainly, if you have suggestions for future episodes, let us know. Other examples of ancient technology and ancient inventions that you would like to see profile, other more modern inventions. Like really, one of our, our, our basic approaches to the show here is that that all inventions uh, are on the table, you know, be it, you know, the big obvious things, but also the, the smaller, less obvious things, the failed things, and even the things that uh, that didn't quite come to into existence at all. Or the terrible inventions. Yeah, terrible inventions. Bring them on. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Invention, uh, the website's inventionpod.com. That's a great way to seek us out. And if you want to help support the show, really the best thing you can do is rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Make sure you have subscribed as well. 
Huge thanks to our producers today, Seth Nicholas Johnson and Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 